Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Mohat Swani, CFO of ThoughtSpot. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Andrew. Look forward to this. So you started your career and cut your teeth on Wall Street. I'd love to hear your framework, how you evaluate strategic decisions, having experience on both sides of the table, CFO of an incredibly quickly growing company. And I'm curious as that, how has that informed essentially your, your relations with your investors, learning how to ask the right questions? Would love to explore that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I spent the first decade of my career, a couple of years in banking, but then the rest was in on the investing side, private equity investing across, first across a range of companies, everything from venture to full-on buyouts of slow growth industrial companies. If you've ever been to one of the plants, I won't mention the name, but was a manufacturer of frozen dinners. And uh, if you want a reason to get healthy, go visit the plant in which they show you how they batter the chicken, fry it in massive vats of oil, and then spit it out and put it in trays and pack it up. Uh, that'll get you healthy uh, pretty quickly. So I got a chance to see, it's fun, early in your career, go see a range of companies, get a chance to understand how they work. And you know what you learn, though, is to understand business models and to understand how what are the economics of a business, ultimately, right? As a private equity investor, you're trying to make a decision in a relatively short amount of time, whether to invest in a company when they're raising, because often there's a banker involved or otherwise. Right. And so you definitely build that, you know, um, that domain expertise in certain industries. And I think the reason to do that is you get a lay of the land on what's going on, sort of zooming out in that industry, growth rates, competitive dynamics, and trends, what might be happening as far as new technologies, you know, capabilities, foreign competition, things of that nature, depending on the industry. So you get a very good lay of the land. And then, and then ultimately you get, you know, a lens through which to understand a business and okay, what is this business? And, you know, software businesses have certain characteristics that you're looking for in terms of gross margin and recurring revenue and retention and go to market acquisition, you know, other businesses, media, et cetera, might have other metrics. And so I think that's, that's a, you go through that exercise a lot and that's the fun of it. And I think the intellectual challenge of it is getting your hands around a business and then that gives you a framework to be able to say, okay, this is what good looks like in a particular segment, right? When we look at companies that have done well and investors love to pattern match um, and talk about, okay, you know, XYZ company is the leader here, certainly in SaaS, plenty of names to go pattern match against, whether it's, you know, ServiceNow in terms of their durable growth over the last decade, whether it's, you know, a modern snowflake uh, and some of the pricing and, you know, stickiness that they've built with their customers. So you get a chance to then pattern match against what good looks like. And I think the main thing, though, is um, when you strip it away, it's going, and I think you get this in private equity. I don't know if you always get this on the public side, but it's stripping away from below the headline metrics, financial metrics, to what are the operating metrics and cadence that influence that. And that's what you get into in private equity. It's like, okay, we want to see customer churn is this. Why is that? And you dig into the data and you dig into, well, it could be our pricing. It could be because of competition. It could be because we're going through a change in the industry and there's someone else taking share. could be that we're just not doing a great job with it. So you start to understand the operating metrics and, and data behind the financial metrics. And that's really valuable. And I think, you know, as it translates to your question on uh, being a CFO and why, you know, for me, I made the move is that now you get to put that into practice. And so you know what good looks like. And you can, you can, as a CEO, as a CFO, you can say, hey, well, R&D should be this percent of revenue, payback period should be this. And you, you certainly will share that. 
But then the fun is you're digging in and saying, okay, where are we relative to that and why? And if our metrics are maturing still, okay, let's understand why. Like in our case, we went from one segment, which is enterprise to majors, the largest companies in the world, to commercial. Each of those is a different cadence, a different sales cycle, um, you know, a different maturity. And so we look at each of those individually and can understand how each of those behave. And then you can make decisions as opposed to just applying like one metric and saying, well, they all got to get to this number. Well, they're different. So I, I find that very valuable, which is breaking down a business into its components, understanding the drivers uh, behind the um, the financial metrics that you're trying to get to, into, because that then just influences how you build, right? And uh, it influences how you talk to investors. We just went through uh, and are on the other side of a major move to the cloud uh, in our business. We're an 11-year-old company today. But the first six years, we're in a world in which data was hybrid or on-prem, and our deployment was that, and we moved the business completely. As we were going through that shift, it was important to demonstrate to investors what to expect and then what that would look like and how that would play out, right? And so, and take them through the journey. And because ultimately investors, I think they're willing to bet behind teams and do something bold like that, but they kind of don't want surprises and they want to understand, all right, help me understand how you're doing as you go through this. So I think being able to communicate that and like, this is what you're going to see. Like in our case, gap revenue is going to slow down because you're going from, because of, no, we won't get into the accounting, but 606, we are going from an on-prem upfront weighted revenue recognition where you get most revenue upfront to now it's ratable. Good thing for our business, but for a couple of years, that means there'll be a headwind. Here's what you should expect. Here's how that'll play out. And we're on the other side of that. So I think I think it's invaluable having an investor um, uh, mindset and experience coming into a CFO seat. I feel it's super helpful, certainly not just in the obvious engaging with investors and the board, but then being able to just guide your peers on the management team on like, mm-hmm. let's look at the underlying operating metrics that are going to lead to the performance we want and help shine light on that and help sort of bring, you know, clarity and visibility. So, so yes, I think, you know, in a nutshell, being able to understand multiple business models, being able to dig below the financial metrics to the operating metrics, and then be able to articulate what good looks like and, and to help build a plan to get there are, I think, uh, attributes you really get being on the investing side. Yeah, it's really well put. Thanks, Fred. I was listening to another podcast that you were on and you were explaining the level of transparency that you promote with your investors and how often you're communicating. And I'm wondering if that is indicative of a mentor early in your career. Uh, I was talking to Chuck Fisher from Turo uh, on one of my episodes just recently, and he was mentioning that it's a relationship business. His route from banking to a CFO seat was a relationship with an early mentor back at Lehman. Uh, So I'm curious if you had that kind of leadership early in the career or if there were early influences that kind of guided and shaped uh, the way that you promote transparency. Yeah, totally. And it, there is some of that. Absolutely. There's three things, really, I'd say. One is ThoughtSpot as a company. Our mission is to build a more fact-driven world, right? We make, and we'll get into it, we get access to information easy and at your fingertips in the enterprise. And so that is what we do. Uh, we are looking to help companies be able to make data-driven decisions and bring that as they try to do that as part of their culture. So for us to kind of you know do that ourselves is natural. And we, we want people to see the power and enablement that I think comes about when you have access to information. You cut away the noise, you cut away opinions, and you get to the facts. Mm-hmm. So one, it's a cultural thing for us. And I, I, I do believe personally, it's quite empowering, which I'll get to. On your question on mentors, absolutely. What I would say are you know, really two in the, or my first role was at uh, 
PayPal when I went into the corporate side. I spent a lot of time in fintech and we were in the mobile payments wave that was capturing, taking hold. And, and I thought PayPal would be an interesting place to explore some of that and, and experience that. Bob Swan ran eBay as their CFO, uh, helped run the business, and PayPal was part of eBay. And I think every meeting I was in with him was, he always started with, you know, whatever you had prepared for presentation materials is all fine. He had dug into what he wanted to know and prepared and come in and said, okay, that's all fine. What about these three things, right? Sort of cut right to the heart of it. And so, and those were the right things to talk about. And, and so I found that was just, you know, people talk about too many meetings, over meetings, this, that. So let's cut right to it and just cut right to the chase. And that I think is, comes from having access to information and being able to, to form, form a, a point of view. So I found that very motivating. And then Square was incredible culture on a many fronts. One of which was that transparency. Sarah Fryer, once a month in front of our company at the All Hands, would do a. Um, actually, every two weeks we would meet, and you know she would do a double click on the numbers. But we would do it not just with like, hey, here's a recap of the numbers. We would pick a storyline. We would pick something that's going on in the business, a trend, and that we wanted to highlight. Like for for example, Square moved from SMB to midsize merchants and larger merchants, and we wanted to talk about that as a as a really strong performance metric at the company, but provide numbers around it and use. So we would provide the financial update that way. We wouldn't just give the same metrics every week and say, here's how the PNLs moved, et cetera. It's like, hey, look at this. Our business is going up market. And here's what that looks like. And here's what it means for our ARR. Here's what it means for you know our average customer size and our ability to add more products and then grow and then zoom out and say, that's now how it's showing up in our revenue growth. So I thought that was extremely powerful. And it was a session people looked forward to because it is refreshing to have numbers presented in a way that tells the story. And so that's very much the approach that we take as well. The final piece on that, the third one, I would say, you know, people talk about being strategic CFOs, et cetera. At the end of the day, you're not, you kind of know, you know, you make your strategic decisions on which market you're playing in, how you want to position your product, et cetera. And you test and learn, but you're not changing strategy every few months, right? It shouldn't be. And so then ultimately as a CFO, it's bringing the data that supports how we're doing against the bets that we said we're going to make. And, you know, hey, we're going to be great here. Okay, how are we doing, right? Like we built, we started an embedded product and we're like, we're going to test and learn in this internal, uh, what's called embedded analytics. So third parties using our analytics as part of their product, whether it's a software company or a, or a marketplace and be able to show like, wow, look at how that's growing. Look at the sales cycles there. Look at what that's doing. It's quite powerful. And then that influences where we're going to invest as a business. So I do think as CFO, ultimately being strategic is just, having your fingers on the data that tells the story of how we're doing and the bets we decided to make, right? Because that influences decision-making. So it's it's really those three elements, I would say, cultural for ThoughtSpot, certainly roles of influences of, of folks that I've worked with. And then where I feel like a CFO can be uh, most effective or why, you know, take a view towards being more transparent on information. Excellent. Let's, let's dive right into ThoughtSpot. I know that Mode Analytics was a recent acquisition. It's very exciting. I'm interested in kind of stepping back and maybe providing some advice or counsel to CFOs who are being tasked by investors, board members, their CEO, how they're going to leverage AI in the workplace, and basically how you have thought through uh, an artificial intelligence strategy. I'm not sure anybody could have predicted that Sam Altman and Elon meeting on Sand Hill Road uh, over breakfast could have turned you know the world upside down, and it's really changed you know a lot of the venture community and a lot of the software communities into just almost a different market cycle. It looks really different than 2022. So would love any sort of guide, guidelines, guardrails, or advice that you may have in this experience. 
I mean, that's the beauty. And, you, you know, we take this for granted, but it's it's why people come here. You know, I've worked in more traditional industries for a while and then came into the Valley. And you've got an ecosystem of talent, of ideas and capital that's willing to back them up. And as a result, you get these incredible waves of innovation. And I think it's, we take it for granted, but it's truly a special thing about, you know, the industry we work in. Uh, and so you're absolutely right. Uh, we're seeing the AI wave become the dominant theme right now after a bit of crypto, a bit of, you know, metaverse, uh, you don't hear much about those as much anymore. And so we'll see if this wave has more legs. I think it does. So a couple of things on that front, and we'll talk about mode as well. Uh, our business, uh, you know, if you look back at our at our at our marketing, you look back at our, our website. AI is not a new thing that we just plopped on in the last couple of years because it's the hot thing. The challenge we set about to solve was this: when we got started, you already had your we we exist in the broader business intelligence, um, you know, industry. So you already had your tableaus, you already had your clicks, which were providing visualization tools. Right. And what it, what the way you work with them is, you know, I'm I'm a BI team and a data analyst sitting within a company, and I have requests from the CMO or the CFO to go and create these dashboards so they can track their metrics in a way they can understand, right? Create visualization. You've seen, everybody's seen these bar charts, pie graphs, what have you, and so that made for a very easy way to consume information. And it did require though that BI teams have the technical know-how to where, know where the data sits, where to pull it from work a database, run SQL queries to go do that. And the challenge we wanted to set is like, what about the people who don't know how to do that, right? And so what about the folks who are on the receiving end of a dashboard, but like, wait a minute, I've got two other questions, or I want to understand better what's going on. And I actually have a new question I didn't think to ask. And now I have to go back to my BI team or the finance team to go pull this. We said, can we cut out that that lag? Can we cut out that friction and make it easy for you to get answers to your questions? Now, that means you don't know how to run SQL. You have no idea where the data sits. And uh, you just want the answer. And so in order to do that, we built the product from the ground up to enable that use experience. And that required machine learning. That required us being you asking a simple question using a keyword search and us being able to go figure it out for you and figure out where that data is based on the logic that you've applied and us saying, hey, you asked for top selling products. That means sales. That means, you know, et cetera, down to the SKU level or what have you. And then we surface that for you and we run the SQL queries and everything in the background. So that required effectively the work that a few data analysts would be doing to do it inside the product. That did require AI and machine learning. So it's always been a part of the fabric of the product. Today, what the then the beauty of AI is it truly does bring natural language capabilities to a broad range of applications, right? And so what we were an early adopter there. And what that allowed us to do is go from the experience I just took you through, which is a keyword search to true natural language, right? Our product is a keyword exploration product. So top 10 products in Japan, right? And then we would do all the work from there. Still quite intuitive. With LLMs today, and we integrate with GBT, is you can just ask, what are my top selling products in Japan? We will take that, we'll integrate with an LLM, we will translate it to the keyword search that we know how to break it down into, and then we do everything that we've normally done below the surface. LLMs, you can't just plop an LLM on enterprise data and have it run that experience. So we were, uh, because of our strategy and positioning, we were well, well equipped to go to really take that last mile and translate to natural language search. So we're super excited about that capability. I think it only continues to fortify the vision that we have, which is make it easy for anyone to ask questions. So that's a bit on, and we can talk more on AI, obviously, but that's a bit on how we are seeing that play out. And there's a bunch of natural extensions. Is we, I don't think three, four years from now, BI is waiting for you to ask a question. Right. right. 
but where it's going to be like, okay, you're a CMO. Here are the metrics you care about. You're CMO of a SaaS company. Kind of get a, we know what you what you're looking for. Let us start to populate things for you, a live board for you, and then let us start to surface things. Right? You need to be thinking about your funnel conversion. Your funnel conversion just changed week on week. Or you need to be thinking about this event that you just had and how many leads came out of it. Let me trigger that for you because you know what? It's not tracking to the targets you had, or it is. So. We have started to introduce something called Monitor, which tracks the metrics you care about and will give you updates real time. So you come in in the morning or you're on your app on ThoughtSpot and we'll trigger for you, hey, this metric's starting to change. Let us show you why, right? It's not just that it changed. Now you got to go scramble and figure out what the hell happened. Let's tell you the top five things that influence that metric because we are sitting live on your data. And so we're giving that to you real time. So we're very excited about what AI does to make it easy for anyone to get answers using natural language and then also proactively surface things to you that we think you're going to care about. So that's AI, and we'd love to talk, talk about there, obviously, if you'd like. As far as M&A and mode, we've actually done four acquisitions over the last four years. And the first three were talent acquisitions to bring really specific talent that we wanted to um, develop. Two of them were in India. So our chief development officer formerly ran a multi-thousand person team at Cisco and had you know, really seen the advantage of scaling teams multi-geography and especially across the U.S. and in India. And so as we were doing that here, you know, we've done a couple of acquisitions to put us in new cities and just bring great dedicated talent that had experience in the BI space or in the cloud data space. And so we did that to go from beyond Bangalore into two other cities, Hyderabad and, and Trivandrum. The mode acquisition was the first one we did was actually bringing in a, a company in our space, you know, with a, a significant revenue base, significant customer base. And, you know, when you sketch out a deal on paper, this really did have all the uh, kind of factors you look for. Complementary to the point of why we were surprised. We have over a thousand combined customers now. We only have five that overlap. So it's incredible given we, and why is that? They focus on tech. They focus on emerging names in the tech sector. So your DoorDashes of the worlds and your Instacarts have become large customers there. And they, like I mentioned to you, our, our sort of vision, which is to and make it easy for anyone to ask questions. Well, within the enterprise, you still have your BI team that needs to go and get technical and get in the data and then add. Our view is, look, once everybody can take care of their own questions, you as a BI team can really focus on value-added analytics. And that's where Mode sits. Mode serves that more technical analyst who wants to get into the data, right, and deepen the data, wants to create their own you know, dashboards and analytics once knows how to work SQL queries and et cetera. So it gives us a now a product that serves that segment. So it's very complimentary and from an industry perspective, very complimentary uh, as well. So that really was a, was a great fit, great brand loved among the startup and, and tech community and um, happened to be a timing in which they said, look, makes sense for us to be part of a broader platform. And we were able to, from a mechanics point of view, use stock and all that and, and, and create a transaction that made sense for both of us. So it's truly a, you know, we're just a few weeks in since closing the acquisition, just had our first, you know, all company kickoff uh, with them as well with us. So a lot of energy in the room. So we're excited. So I, it's interesting. I mean, my, my view on, on M&A is you don't often think about it at companies at our stage sort of venture backed to add revenue, to add growth, because often the deal dynamics are tough, right? Someone's valuation is tough or what have you. I think if you can do it well and be picky and find the right opportunities, I think it can be extremely, you know, accretive. So time will tell for us, obviously, but we're excited about this one. So that's a bit of the strategy and and how we came about to acquire Mode. Yeah, it's really exciting. Thanks for all that. I, I kind of want to go back to just how quickly things are developing and maybe what you're excited about in the next, you know, year versus three to five. I was thinking before this episode, 
you know, in the 70s and 80s, you had mainframe BI type solutions with low accessibility and high expertise required. By the 90s and then early 2000s, we had web-based, where it was high accessibility, still relatively low expertise required in this kind of era. And it sounds like what you're describing is ThoughtSpot is going to lead in basically self-service where the accessibility is extremely high and the expertise required is extremely low. And I'm curious as to what that looks like and continues to iterate on because it sounds like you're suggesting maybe it becomes more predictive and you're freeing up more resources for BI teams to be you know, more strategic. So curious as to what's exciting uh, in your mind. Yeah, on the horizon. So yeah, no, you've definitely you've taken us back a, a ways there. So kudos on the quick the quick recap of our waves of innovation we've been through. Absolutely. So you know, both from um, we'll talk about the use case for the for the for the BI team and others and how this what this I think all these technologies mean for them, but then also the waves we've been through. So that yes, the dominant wave we've been seeing as far as at the infrastructure layer, it already happened at the app layer. Apps moving to the cloud and the SaaS model. And uh, clearly, when you look at the growth of Google BigQuery and AWS and, and, and Databricks or Snowflake, the data is moving to the cloud as well. And moving from a captive infrastructure in your own data centers where you've got to worry about security and latency and uptime. I mean, I was at, at PayPal when we started this journey. And as you can imagine, you know, the transaction volumes PayPal is generating and the security needs, you know, protecting people's wallets and all, it was a, it was a strong philosophical bent towards we're doing this internally. Um, and, and in the last seven years, they've now moved that over to, to the cloud. So that's happening across the enterprise for the benefits that it provides, the flexibility, the cost, you know, just a, a, the, the advantage of scale and not having to manage all of that infrastructure yourself. What it also does, though, is it creates a, you know, in a cloud data warehouse, it creates a data infrastructure that is a lot more accessible. You don't have silos and data siloed off into separate warehouses, et cetera. And so that is the big a big reason to do it. There are costs, there are technical reasons, but from an ultimate, like, what does it mean for our business? It's opening up the value of your data a lot more than perhaps you've been able to do so far. And so that for us has been, uh, I think, a, a probably a key catalyst uh, in why customers then end up choosing ThoughtSpot because, okay, all right, I've moved my data. You know, I've gone from an Oracle and other sort of environment and I moved to the cloud. And now that I've done that, uh, I've got my data sitting in this cloud warehouse. I want to make it accessible to more people. Well, okay, the data is there now. You need a means to access it. You need that last mile or that BI layer. So we sit on top of that modern data stack and you'd have data sitting in you know the names I talked about, GBQs, AWS, Redshift, uh, Snowflake, Databricks, et cetera, um, Azure. And then you often have some kind of semantic layer. We have our own, you have others like DBT that are doing tagging of that data so that the business terms are identified and then you're ready for analytics. And that's where we sit. So when you're getting hands-on keyboard and I'm you know, in the business and I am now want to get access to that data, that's who we are serving, that's our customer. And so I do think this creates to your point, absolutely like mass accessibility and lower cost, a lower friction of access. Now, there's a lot of things that come with that governance, and the ability to protect data, not have everyone have access to everything. Those are key things. Those are key parts of how we've built, you know, the product. So folks are protect, you know, who has access to what. They can't just go and change source data, et cetera. So there's a lot of governance and other provisions that come with enabling access to data. But once you have it, it's very powerful. And so, you know, customers and are in their digital transformation wave looking at us as a, as a key part of that. And so your CBSs of the world, et cetera, supply chain group wants to go and get access to, you know, data on how certain products are doing, where's their backlog, they can just do that themselves. And that's just one of countless examples. So I do think, I do think it is changing the ability for people, just like in our consumer lives to use Google, 
and get access to anything, start it'll, the cloud enables that in the enterprise. What it means for the BI analyst, second part of your question, yeah, I do think our view has always been we're not looking to replace the BI analyst. We're not looking to take, you know, we are looking to take work off their plate, which is the backlog of requests that they have, which is, hey, you cut the data this way. Can you go add this follow-on for me? Can you go add another question? Hey, I wanted to go dig in deeper. This whole backlog, let's take it off your plate. Let people do that themselves now, right? ThoughtSpot sits live on your data. They can go as deep as they want. They can get the drill downs that they want to do. And let's free you up to actually add, you know, value and think about how you can provide analytics that supports the business. And then their job absolutely will be like, I think there's a few key, there's a lot, I think everything gets impacted by AI. I think certainly the job of a data analyst, I think a job of people in finance, right, will be impacted by making it easier to get the routine stuff going and then allowing you to have tools now to figure out how to add more value. And I do think that you see this debate, will humans be replaced? It's a set. I do think the combination of super talented people who understand the domain they're in, it could be pharma, it could be business, it could be what have you, with AI at their fingertips provides a very powerful combination, right? What if I can go provide you with this visibility before you know to ask? And so I think harnessing the power of AI, it, people do have to adapt to that. But the underlying, going back to what we started, the underlying understanding of a business and what moves the needle and like what would be important to understand, I think requires the human element. So I think data analyst jobs will change. I think AI will enable them. It'll replace the easy tasks, but that hopefully allows them then to be engaged on stuff that's more interesting and moves the needle for you know their customers. Excellent. I'm curious about some of the integration strategy. You said it's, you know, congratulations, obviously, first on the acquisition. But Thank you. integration strategy is a whole different ballgame. You said you've you know, consistently made acquisitions throughout your tenure already. So curious yeah. as to what's been successful and maybe what other CFOs can learn from in terms of uh, you know, post-closing and uh, cultural and sort of um, you know, more practical integration strategies. Yeah, it was interesting. This was a big shift from going from private equity where you invest and you're a financial investor and the, the pure interest is financial and, and that's why companies raise money versus a, a strategic acquiring a company. So I was, you know, helped uh, build out the PayPal Corp Dev Group when I was there. We did a lot of acquisitions and it was interesting to watch why they work and they don't. First up front is being very clear on what you're looking to get done through the acquisition, what need it serves, why you're bringing it in, because then you need, an, a, to your point, integration plan that reflects that. Are we looking to bring on the CEO of a company that because we want to go build a product capability or not? Or it's like, hey, look, sorry, this is a team we're going to plug into an existing initiative we have already underway. That's the expectation. And you set that up front. And so some of the management team transitions from a company you acquire, for example, better to have that up front than have a, you know, a turf fight happen six months, 12 months down the road, which, you know, you're in deal mode that happens. Like people want to promise things. So I think being very clear on what it is that the acquisition will serve. And what I found the best is when there is a, there's two things, there's either a roadmap initiative that we want to get done. We're not delivering on, okay, let's bring on, we could go try to find 40 people and hire them and do that. But you know what, why don't we bring on this talented team of folks who already know how to do this and accelerate our roadmap. Okay, there's a clear like objective role they're gonna play and go. Or like, hey, there is a strategic piece on our overall roadmap that we think we're not doing and we can think about accelerating through M&A. So that's the case of mode. Like we wanna create tools that for that, even that technical analyst is gonna make their life easier. Could go build that and take some time and take a couple of years to do it, or can start with a company that's already very deep and brings us a large base of customers and a brand and, and a great team. And so I think knowing why you're doing something is important. And it may sound simple, but often you get deal heat or like something becomes available. Like we should do this. And then you figure it out later, figure it out up front. So that's one. 
integration plans for us, the important thing is to start and treat it like you have to have a plan because if you just acquire a company and say, all right, all the heavy lifting's done, you're going to have issues on your hands. So we were, as we went from LOI into our closed deal, you know, started getting teams together and sort of saying product, you know, GNA, and then kind of go to market and set up those work streams. Day after we closed, the entire leadership team from product on both sides was together in our office for a week and working through and already had an agenda and uh, work plans around like, let's think about product integration. Let's think about pricing. Let's think about, you know, how we're going to serve customers once they're up and running with us. So just clarity to set up and avoid confusion. You don't have the, all the answers, but it's like, all right, these are these are the, the things we need to knock down. Go to market is one where, look, if you have a lot of customer overlap, that can be challenging. Thankfully, we don't have that issue. We will maintain two brands at this point. We will maintain two products. Like, I mean, there is a, but we're going to start to look at ways in which, you know, you can uh, easily migrate from being a mode customer and all the stuff you've done in mode to now, if you want to make that self-serve and thought spot, migrate that over and make that available to anyone. So clearly there is a path there towards a, a product synergy, but we're buying a product that's well-liked and so we need to you know, keep, keep them doing what they're doing. So I think the pain points come up with employee retention and customer retention, and that's where you can get into trouble. So we're f- very focused on both. We did bring the companies together. We did have some redundancies. So we did act quickly to say, look, here's what, here's who's got a seat on the bus. And I think it's never fun to do that and have a reduction, but in a way, at least it's done early, it's clarifying and we're going forward. And so we we, we did that and, and we, in the first three weeks of closing, we were very intentional around that. So these people are like, all right, I'm here, I'm part of this company, I'm part of this combined, I don't have to be thinking in the back of my mind whether I have a seat or not. And then um, we also identify the leadership roles that will come from the combined company. Mm-hmm. And we've announced that to the company as well. And so there's clarity on who's doing what, who's coming in from mode, who's coming in from ThoughtSpot, who's doing what. So provide clarity to people so we can start going back to work and do your job. And then on the customer side, very intentional. Like we're preserving, Mode has a, a great account management function, customer success function, and we're, in, we're continuing to retain that. Kind of do no harm is the initial, you know, kind of principle. Retain customers, have them know Mode, the, they bought the Mode product. The Mode product's being supported. We're going to continue to invest, innovate. Plus you get all the benefits of ThoughtSpot. What people hate is like, you start to tinker with a product that they wanted, right. they're using, they chose it for a reason. And now it's like, it's not what I thought it was. And that has happened. There have been other acquisitions in our space that haven't gone well. So very conscious of that and continue to preserve what mode does great. So I think, you know, these aren't rocket science things, but it is, you have to treat it as not just a deal, but like, you know, a good 12, 18 months of very active integration planning across people, across customers, across product, and make sure that your leaders are bought in and are seeing that as a key part of their job now to go deliver it. Because it is, it is a it is a big change. And so it's been great to see the leadership team just kind of step up and really clearly identify priorities and make tough decisions and and, and start to move that forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, alignment is simple, but not easy. And I think especially across uh, you know, times when the corporation and the structure is changing, whether you're raising a new round or making an acquisition, alignment is obviously key. And I'm curious as to how you think of your role in communicating, not just with the board, but with your CEO, uh, with investors. I know we talked earlier about the level of transparency that you like to promote, even you know shareholder communications, probably employee owner communications, uh, you know, communicate the value of their holdings and the trajectory. And I think all of that continues to help with all that alignment. And then I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, where you view ThoughtSpot's position in the market, maybe against some of the uh, other competitors. You're knocking on some really big doors successfully. Uh, yeah. So kind of curious as where you feel the market position is today. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the the role in the in an acquisition before, during, and after for a CFO is is critically important. The one I would say is, look, in any acquisition, there's going to be voices saying, let's do it. There's going to be voices saying, no, it's too complicated. It's too hairy. It's difficult. It's scary. And I think, you know, that's a hard, that's, as a CEO, it's probably one of the tougher challenges you'll take on is uh, deciding to bring another company in and integrate, bring new leaders into your company, take the risk of a cultural rejection, all that stuff. It's a big deal. And so I, and what I've always found as CFOs, like be the be a voice that develop develop a point of view. Don't just be someone else with an opinion that's like, well, it could go this way, that way. Make, a, make the tough call to have a point of view and say, and in my view, it's this. There's always risks and there's always benefits. Here's the risks, right? That we could have from a financial perspective. Like, you know, we might lose our customers. Here's what that looked like, this and that. Here's the benefits and all the cross-sell opportunity and incredible synergy with having such a low overlap bring their product to our, you know, broader segments, lay that out and provide a point of view and say, look, and, and so in my case, it was like, absolutely. Yes, we should do this. Here's why. Here's the analytics on whether it's accretive to our business or not. Here's the, what you need to believe. Because one thing you will not know is the perfect two-year view on what an acquisition is going to look like. Here's kind of what you need to believe for this to be accretive. Can we believe this, right? Can this, can we grow their customer base this much? Can we cross-sell this much? right? Can we bring them into these verticals they're not in today? Some basic assumptions. Can a rep at ThoughtSpot sell this much of mode, you know, within six months and 12 months? And you break it down and you show the data and you're like, yeah, this feels pretty doable, right? And I think we can do much better. But if we at least do this, it's a good acquisition. So provide that grounded data, provide a point of view, and then say, hey, here are the risks. And we got to be all over it and manage this, right? We don't want to lose their customers. We don't want to lose key employees. What are we going to do about it? Create an action plan and then move forward. So that's what I find. Like, I think you want to be clear in your thinking. And if the answer is no, then also say why. We have looked at other deals that we passed. I say, here's why. Like, this thing is going to be when you play it out and look at their trends, hugely detrimental to our growth rate, doesn't make any sense. And so have a point of view. Ultimately, CEO has to make a call, board has to opine and, 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 and influence the call. But I do think that's a, a, a role that you play in that. And you can influence the integration plan. And then from a communication perspective, you know, I think providing clarity to folks on why we chose to do an acquisition, what it means for our combined business, and then ultimately what this can look like and get people excited about the opportunity on a combined basis. That's the whole management team. That's not just on a CFO, product leads, and, and the whole team has to has to provide that vision. But I think the CFO can, CFO can paint the picture. And in our case, you know, it takes us to you know, 150 on a combined ARR, when you look at what it does for our trajectory, the segments that it, it helps us put us in that, that we weren't in, and then vice versa, the opportunities to grow uh, their business. I think people get pretty excited about like, wow, similar to what I told you, can you believe this? Like, if you need to believe this, this is what this looks like. Right. And people get fired up about that because it's like, all right, my stock's going to be worth more. This is accretive. And more so like, we're just you know, we are continuing to enhance our position. And we'll talk, which goes to your next question as, you know, the, the sort of emerging leader in modern BI. You know, it really, there's no one else that's independent now that sits across the modern data stack. Uh, we're agnostic. We sit across, you know, all the major cloud data warehouses I mentioned to you. We are independent of any strategic. And we now have that ability to serve the everyday sort of, you know, everyday business worker, as well as that highly technical analyst. So it really helps fill out the suite for us. So I think people get excited about that. That's like, yeah, if you came here to go build the next leader in BI, 
There was the last wave that consolidated, which was Looker and Tableau and Click. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're here to build the next wave because this is an industry that goes through waves, right? You, you took us back a little bit, but Cognos, business objects, and then Tableau, and Click, and now ThoughtSpot. We are at the front of that third wave, and we're very excited about that. And, and combining with Mode only only continues to strengthen and, and, and enhance our position there. I'm curious as to how any of what you just explained shifts during different market cycles where down rounds were prevalent. It's really interesting to see with the with all of AI coming out and all of the venture community being pretty excited by it. It, it tells a very different narrative than it did in 2022 and 2021 and 2020, all yeah. really different years. And it felt like we lived through a couple market cycles really quickly because we basically did. And I'm just curious as to how you shift and uh, strategize around uh, different market dynamics, whether it's public or private markets. Yeah. Private and private to public is definitely a shift. As far as where we are, I'm going to talk about that. As far as it sort of cycles, my view is, and it comes from being an investor, like the, the fundamentals of what it means to build a good business, they don't change over time, right? People thought in the early days of dot-com, you could sell at low gross margins, doesn't matter, you make it up in volume. I mean, you look at the unlock in Amazon. It was Amazon, they were a very low margin business. Obviously, they continued to dominate e-commerce, but Amazon Prime helped and having that fixed revenue stream and then and then AWS and cloud and providing a lot of bottom line, you know, profitable growth as well. So ultimately, like that matters. I saw it at Square when we went from, you know, negative EBITDA to positive EBITDA. It unlocked the stock when we went from negative EPS to positive EPS. Once you're at a certain size and you're a few hundred million in, in revenue, there's no reason you should be burning money. If you have a good reason to and you show it like, okay, but as a business, you have to be able to generate profit. So I don't think that changes, right? What is a good SaaS company? What are the gross margins? What are the go-to-market economics? Ultimately, it's how much do you decide to put into if product innovation is showing each product is really growing our TAM, yeah, invest. If you're showing that by adding reps and regions, you can do that effectively and have a payback period that's accretive, do it. But know the metrics you're measured against because right. what good is, is, and I think that got lost a little bit in growth at all costs and where you're like, Jesus, mm. some of these customer segments for folks maybe aren't that lucrative, they're churning, or damn, that is a high cost to acquire customers. That doesn't make sense. So I just think whatever the waves come and go, what builds a fundamental, like a strong business doesn't change. And so that's my been always been my uh, vision and, and very aligned with the management team here, which is we're building for the long term. This is a space that's given rise to multiple billion dollar, even $2 billion businesses where you look at, you know, Tableau is today. We're playing a long game. And so the next wave of evolution will be as a public company. And for that, to your question, yeah, we know what that looks like. We know what public investors look for. And that's the thing about SaaS businesses. Like you'll have different growth rates. You'll have different market dynamics for sure. But the financial metrics boil down to, you know, a handful. And so we watch those and we, you know, we each eat, like I mentioned, we understand each of our segments and we understand how they perform in terms of CAC and in terms of retention, in terms of growth. And we are reasoned in where we're making investments. Yes, we run experiments. You have to, right? You don't do back to being in the Valley. You got to run experiments and the capital is there to, to help you do that. So we do make bets and, you know, some of the, some of the capital is around just emerging bets, but then in our core business and with the getting more mature, we have metrics that we track. So I, I think, um, and look, that takes alignment with the management team, with a CEO who has that same outlook, which is important. So we are building towards, you know, being a top tier performing public company, because honestly, that's also where value is created, right? Yes, there was a wave, like you said, in 21, 20, where the IPO became the exit event, right? Right. If you could go public at 40 times, 50 times forward revenue, you're probably taking money off the table. <laughs> and you're like, hey, this is pretty good. 
And, you know, for a while, people thought this is the new norm in SaaS and everybody convinced themselves of that. But then ultimately, it starts to come back to what the averages have been. And so I think you had to recognize that for what it was. It was a euphoria about some of the trends. It was zero interest rates. And you know what? You know, came on the the, the the tail end of a bull market that had gone for for more than a decade. And liquidity for LPs at the end of the day, too, for all those funds. Yeah. Yeah. All those funds that, you know, you serve as your customers. So what does that mean? We raised money. We raised money in 21. We took, you raise money when you can. The market was good. We were performing. And, you know, we brought on, to their credit, March Capital, an extremely long-term thinking investor. They know they they came in at a time where the market multiples were different from what they are now. But at the same time, they've seen us perform. They've seen us continue to grow and execute behind what they said. And they say, look, that's that's all we can ask for from you. And ultimately, where the markets are is going to be where they are. When we get public, you know, we did our company uh, kickoff. And the, I usually try to talk about a few metrics. This year, I just talked about one, which is durable growth. And I gave the example of, of ServiceNow, right, which went public, kind of reopened. They and Facebook reopened the IPO market after the housing crisis, yep. summer 2012. And I forget where they are, but they're up 50 or 60 times. I think No, 30. They're up about 30 times from their IPO price, somewhere from 18 to like 560 or something. But why? They just kept growing. And they found new segments. They found new use cases. They grew to 7,500 customers. So what I tell people is worry about that. Worry about being in a market that's large enough. Right. being at a company that has the growth levers across segments and regions and products to have growth for the decade to come. Because if we're doing that, and we do, we've made the investments to have that, stock's going to do fine. Stock's going to do fine, and the market multiples will come and go, and you'll pick your time as to when you want to sell. But ultimately, those underlying, just, I think, fundamentals of what it means to build a good business, I don't think those change. Yeah, that's really exciting, too, because most companies, I think, really struggle with their second act. So for you to be discussing this internally as um, not just a motivator, but you know, informing what that, that second act is going to look like. Continue to develop and grow as a public company is very exciting. I think it's a, it's a really healthy framework for everyone to start wrapping their minds around continued growth. And it's great that you've got the, the capital that is appropriate for that vision as well. I think that, that says a lot about the leadership team. Would love to, to pull up and zoom out a little bit and maybe give us a personal definition of what a modern CFO looks like in, in your opinion. And then would love to dive into my favorite question on the podcast and talk about something you feel is underestimated in the world today. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, the modern CFO definition. I, I, the role has evolved. I mean, I, I, I came into this career path a little bit more than a decade ago and, and sort of learned from a lot of different mentors. Uh, what I've seen, though, and certainly the traits I admire, I mentioned some names, folks I've worked with before, Bob Swan, Sarah Fryer, Patrick Dupuy was the CFO of PayPal as well for a while. John Rainey was our CFO at uh, PayPal during the spin-out, now CFO at uh, at Walmart. I think the combination of you have to be deep in the data, you have to be deep in the numbers, you have to understand what's going on, right? John Rainey would tell me like the, the thing he loved about it is you have your finger on the pulse of the business. And you really do. Like when you look at it that way, it's like there's a drumbeat to a business, there's a cadence, what's happening. You you have the ability sitting in the seat to understand that and uh, in, a, in a unique position to understand that. So I think you have to know you have the technical, I think, know-how, as well as, frankly, just the um, mindset to be very deep in the detail to know what's going on. And so strip away noise from, you know, signal, understand what to look for, not what not, you know, what to ignore because it's not important. So I think that comes with that, starting with understanding back to where we started, the, the DNA of a business, financial model of a business, the operating cadence of a business. So I think that you start with that as a, as, as a CFO. And I think being able to translate that to, how can we do better on those and help influence with go-to-market, with product, with your other teams on, hey, where we need to get better? 
And I think that is that vocabulary, if you start to have that as a company and people are thinking about, geez, if I could just move this from X to Y, if I could move my ASP in my commercial segment from 40K to 70K, or if I can, you know, within 12 months, add a second product to each of my customers. If in Europe, I can go and build, you know, a pipeline of this much, I can demonstrate the demand. It creates vocabulary that's very powerful for a company because you kind of have the milestones to go get. And look, there's always experimentation. There's unknowns for sure. You can't metric everything. But I do think being able to influence how a company thinks about its operating cadence, where to invest, and how people are goaling themselves is a second piece of being a modern CFO because people kind of get it. And you know they have financial targets. They have operating targets that come out of having knowledge. Uh, so I think that's the second piece. And then I think the final is being able to tell the story in a way that inspires folks. It's grounded in the data but it's also aspirational. And I think that's one part where you sometimes have to flip your hat a little bit as a CFO, uh, which is, hey, yeah, I need to present things I can support. I need to present a forecast I can support. I need to be the source of truth. But at the same time, I need to show like, look, here's how we get to you know the next milestone, 500 million or a billion. You know? Here's how we get there. Here's how to think about that. And yeah, this is not a bottoms up plan on you know that's been stretched out to the last detail, but it's like, yeah, can you get your head around this, right? Can you get your head around Europe can be a $150 million business? Can you get your head around this embedded business that we have can be a $200 million business? And when you break it down for folks, it's like, wow, that is actually achievable. It's awesome because those are good milestones and uh, it's invigorating. So I, I actually think the CFO, modern CFO plays a role in telling a story that gets people excited. And people don't often think of that, you know, in the CFO seat, it's like, just tell the numbers. You don't have to sit back and be boring. Help sell the vision, but do it in a way that's grounded to things people can understand. Talk about like what you need to believe. And I, I think that can be very inspiring. So those would be the pieces to me, I think, about being a, a modern you know, CFO. There's obviously a lot of obvious, obvious stuff, using tools, using AI, using products you know, like ours or others. I think, I think that's part of it. But those are the three that I think about as far as outcomes that you can help drive. I've got to say, that's probably one of my favorite uh, personal definitions of a modern CFO I've heard on the podcast so far. So thanks for that. And just segueing into something from your perspective that you feel is underestimated in the world today, uh, it could be quite literally anything. It doesn't have to be ThoughtSpot related or uh, you know daily work uh, environment related. So yeah, you know I, I will say this: in a world in which we went through COVID and everybody's now working at home or thinking about whether to get back in an office, and now we're talking about AI, AI and machines and what they're going to do, I think the piece that's underestimated is we are still human beings, and that matters a lot. And I think even in a way that people may have forgotten. And I've been watching these concerts this summer and, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Beyonce and then, the, you know, obviously Taylor Swift, a big one. And you watch why people are getting, I think there's a connection that people feel like just being around other people who like love the same music, connected to the artist. And it's like, you know, it's energizing. And I think people have missed that during COVID. And that's just an example of where I think human connection, it matters. And so I really do. I think it's motivating. I think it's fulfilling. I think it's what we seek as individuals. And you certainly get it in your family and your friends, but I think it's important at work. You know, I think if you asked a lot of our team, like we just came out of Boston last week, we had our company kickoff. I think most people will tell you the m number one thing they enjoyed is being around, you know, their colleagues because we hire good people. We, <laughs> we don't hire, you know, big ego and, and jerks. We were pretty, pretty careful about our culture and that's fun. And, you know, being able to sit back and have a drink with folks after the day is done and just, or even just get out and like be working on something together and pull up, roll up your sleeves and, and get into it. I, I think that's motivating. So I think human connection is important. I, I have this thing on my, let me see it behind me, uh, this little placard, which is this red placard here. It's from, it was World War II and it was, you know, it was, uh, I was uh, in 
London with my family last summer, and we were uh, we toured the Churchill uh, Museum, which is where he commanded World War II from the British forces. And one of the you know, and they obviously had their their wartime propaganda and all that. One of them was your your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. You wouldn't expect to see cheerfulness on a, a war cry, but I think at the end of the day, it's like, hey, <laughs> we're human beings. You got to keep it light. You got to keep it enjoyable. And, you know, you got to enjoy each other's company. And at the end, that's what's going to carry you sometimes even through the darkest of days. That's what I think is underappreciated is the, is a need for human connection. And just the fact that it is, we are, we are social beings at the end of the day. Excellent. Well, I can't think of a higher note to end on than that. So I just wanted to thank you so much for your time, Owen. I know we'll be in touch. I uh, looking forward and I hope to have you back on the podcast again. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for doing this. It's a, it's a huge asset for the CFO community and for others. I've loved listening and, and watching some of your, your prior episodes. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks.